Investment has not been this challenging in more than a decade, what with the war in Ukraine, supply chain problems, COVID-19, inflation, and high interest rates. And that's just for starters. To make sense of it all, today on Baseline, we have economist Lance Peltz, the CIO and head of investments at Cavendish Ware Wealth Management. From the studios of NMD Plus comes Baseline. Baseline, brought to you by Cavendish Ware, a UK-based boutique wealth management firm that provides truly bespoke advice. Cavendish Ware, wealth for life. And now is your host, Dave Wallace. Thank you so much for joining us today. And today, Lance has rejoined us. And the reason Lance is joining us is because he's just released the quarterly investment review. And we thought it would be a very good moment to actually get under the skin of that review because there's an awful lot going on in the world. So Lance, welcome back. And yeah, let's get into it. So what's happening? Well, the first thing we should mention being the elephant in the room, in fact, is probably the elephant with the 300 pound gorilla on its back is inflation (laughs) and just how strong and entrenched the inflation data is. And in fact, yesterday we had the US consumer price index out. And again, that surprised on the upside. And there's lots of ways of slicing and dicing the inflation numbers, but every way you look at it, both headline inflation and core inflation, that's the measures that economists use to try and strip out both volatile measures and central bankers like using to try and pretend that inflation is not as bad as it appears, is rising and core inflation is high and sticky and it's pretty much here to stay for a while. Most of my adult life, inflation seems to have been relatively under control. And, you know, for me, it sort of feels like quite a new experience to have inflation suddenly running rampant like this. Can you explain some of the reasons behind that? And it's interesting you talk about the American market, because what I read a little while back is inflation in America was likely to be lower than the UK or Europe. And, you know, whether that's right or wrong, but that doesn't seem to be happening either. So could you just sort of explain what's going on at a global level? Yeah, essentially for the last two decades, we've lived in a disinflationary world, punctuated by a couple of crises that are by the nature of deflationary. So what I mean by disinflationary world is that there are a lot of normal mechanisms that lead to price pressures that were offset by globalization. So the accession of China to the World Trade Organization, WTO, in 2001 was actually a seismic event. It didn't feel it. We didn't recognize it at the time, but it unleashed upon the world a huge amount of productive capacity at very low cost. And part of that was the demographics of China. China then was a population that was growing rapidly a population that was moving from the countryside to the city, and the Chinese government had to create jobs, and they created loads and loads of manufacturing jobs. And that was done by keeping the currency at a low level, 
maybe cheap. I wouldn't say it was as manipulated as, say, Donald Trump would like to say, but it was certainly undervalued. And also by cheap energy. China, while it doesn't have oil, does have a lot of coal. And actually coal, if you ignore the externalities, is one of the cheapest sources of energy. You had, at the same time, the benefits of the internet, not only just the efficiencies, but the ability to have price comparison, online shopping, which led to a basically greater price visibility and undercutting for goods at the consumer level. And certainly for the last decade, we've actually had cheap energy. The oil price peaked at about $147 just before the GFC. And even though the global economy is now much larger than that, even with Ukraine and Russia now being shut out of the oil market, oil only peaked at about 120 ish dollars a barrel in the last few months, last few weeks even. And the reason of that is the fracking revolution, which you could view as a technology shift in oil production. And basically, it meant that OPEC lost the ability to set the price and that the US onshore oil industry became the marginal producer of the marginal barrel of oil, which basically meant that as demand went up, the US pumped more oil and the oil price stayed reasonably well behaved. You also had global demographics where population was basically growing and more workers meant more productivity. All of those factors are either fully played out. I mean, one could argue that we've had the internet price revolution and companies like Amazon have gone from being a source of price deflation to actually oligopolistic behavior. Mm -hmm. We're certainly no longer in the world of cheap energy. Even before the Ukraine-Russia war, the oil price was going up. And a significant element of that was basically in the move to net zero. There is now underinvestment in oil production because oil demand is going to drop off 2030, 2040. And these projects have very long lifetimes and lead-in times. And so you can see that the capital expenditure in oil production, certainly in the West, has fallen behind the demand. So if you're an oil company and you want to build an oil rig, you want that oil rig to be useful for 50 years rather than, so, you know, you're kind of really thinking about many years into the future in terms of the investment you make. Certainly developing an oil field, yes, takes many years and many, many millions of dollars to develop. And the same with refineries. In fact, one of the bigger problems that we're facing is not just the availability of crude oil, but it's the availability of refinery capacity. A disproportionate amount of diesel apparently comes from Russia, so that's why the diesel price has been so much stronger than the petrol price. It's these little things that in a functioning world, nobody notices. But when we get the disruptions that we had in the last quarter, these become quite stark. And the other thing is demographics. In many countries now, the population is actually declining. And it used to be that retirees were not necessarily consumers. It was the household creators, the boomers, that were the consumers. New thinking has recognized it's actually the wrong way around. As we retire, certainly for the first few years, we all plan to go out there and indulge ourselves in holidays and treats and so on. We actually have less workers and more consumers. And one of the manifestations driven by COVID is this great retirement. 
one of the reasons why employers, and it's not just in the UK, it's not just pubs, restaurants and airports, etc., struggling to find workers. It's pretty much a global phenomenon. So those were the disinflationary pressures that kept inflation down in the last two decades at the same time that central banks were creating lots of money. The problem is COVID has changed that along with the Russia-Ukraine war, which is a massive supply shock, alongside China's zero COVID policy, which uh, if I'll stick my neck out, is totally flawed and means that China is still shutting down large chunks of regional shutdowns and large chunks of productive capacity to try and curb what is now not an epidemic, but an endemic virus. So those are the inflationary pressures. And these aren't transitory and these aren't one-off. And I think a very great simile is that the toothpaste is out of the tube and we're just not going to be able to put it back. And where it's manifested itself is the cost of labor. With the great retirement, the very low unemployment and very high employment numbers that we're seeing everywhere, the ability of workers to demand more money has been strengthened considerably. It's not just the need to demand more money because their cost of living is going up, but it's their ability. In other words, we are seeing industrial unrest and pay awards that are now significantly higher. And so that leads to inflation being reasonably entrenched. If you've got workers who are then asking for more money, if you're a corporate, your costs start rising and therefore, in terms of your future earnings, that becomes a real problem, does it? Yes. Well, that's actually one of our key premises is that we will see a slowdown because the cost of living crisis, etc., and rising rates will lead to some degree of economic slowdown, which at the corporate level means that top line, the turnover, the revenues will at best not grow as fast as they did last year, maybe actually decline. But at the same time, most corporates are seeing rising input costs and the obvious costs are raw materials and energy. And that feeds through to every step of the value chain. But it's also labor costs. All of us have always wanted more money for the work we do. And we've always felt that our boss doesn't pay us enough. But in the past, we probably couldn't ask for it because in the end, we knew that he could substitute us with somebody else. Or if you're a manufacturer, that production could go offshore to China or Vietnam, and that's ended. So the pendulum, the power between employees and employers is swinging back to employees. I guess you've got Sia Aslef here, you know, the train union mm. being very militant about the action they can take. They're just feeling braver about this because they believe their workers will fall behind them. Yeah, I'll get into deep water here. I mean, Aslef is a very militant union and they do have a stranglehold on train drivers. I think something much more relevant is if you look at one of the major German unions, where the relationship between German unions and corporates has actually been a lot less combative than, say, the UK experience. One of the largest German unions, IG Metall, is asking for over an 8% pay rise. Right. And they are threatening industrial action if they don't get it. And now that's much more significant than Aslef, who regularly. There's a couple of things. One is I'm interested about central banks and increasing interest rates. I guess that's to kind of help dampen down the effects of inflation. But it also sounds like 
the reason why long-term earnings within corporates is because of that pressure, which then finds its way in the markets, which is why the markets are a bit volatile at the moment. Is that right? Yes, with a few steps along the way. (laughs) We shouldn't lose sight that our clients are investing in equity markets and bond markets rather than economic statistics. And there are times when they can move in totally opposite directions. And a lot of it is about what is built into expectations. A significant part is also the valuation that investors will pay for an earnings, future earnings of a company, and then in aggregate, the future earnings of an index like the FTSE 100 or the S&P 500. And the latter part can be described as sentiment. When people are bullish, they'll pay more and vice versa. But essentially, the price of money, which is used to calculate the value of the future earnings streams that you are expecting or hoping, is going up. So the value of the future earnings streams goes down because you could utilize that money elsewhere here and now um, gets a higher return. So as interest rates go up, all things being equal, the value you should apply and therefore pay for a company's future earnings stream would go down. In the background, this shift in inflation from it's transitory, it's within normal expectations, it'll pass to it's actually more serious and more entrenched is going on and means that expectations for interest rates are going up and they're going up more than they were a year ago. So this is the change in expectations. And that applies to the valuations. There's also another factor going on, which is the volume of money, the volume of liquidity is declining. And central banks have been engaging in QE, which is essentially creating electronic money and buying bonds, which puts liquidity back into the system and drives bond yields, which is the mechanism for generating long-term interest rates down. Quantitative easing has ended. And in fact, it's in reverse. Some central banks are actually beginning to, or thinking about selling bonds. And certainly no central bank is buying bonds apart from the Bank of Japan. So quantitative easing becomes quantitative tightening. At the same time, we've got the dollar, which is quite simply rampant. The dollar is back to levels that it was in 2002. And a very strong dollar is effectively a tightening of monetary conditions for everybody else because their imports go up in price. If they borrow in dollars, that gets more expensive. Actually, back to the oil price, a strong oil price is also a tightening because it takes money out of consumers' pockets and actually puts it into the hands of the oil producers. And that money doesn't tend to get recycled as rapidly. So essentially, a much larger proportion of our expenditure, our disposable income, is going towards the Middle East and Russia and other oil producers like Indonesia and Nigeria. And that money is not getting recycled again. So the cost of money is going up and the volume of money is going down. Now, we've already seen the impact of that. Essentially, it's bursting a number of bubbles. And you know, that's most evident in companies that either were COVID beneficiaries and whose future is not so rosy or in fact downright bleak. You know, a very good example of that is Peloton, which has imploded and the share price has fallen about 95%. It's also manifested itself in the biggest, to our mind, overpriced company, which is Tesla. Mm-hmm. And by the way, we don't give stock suggestions, but on any measure, Tesla is, let's say, optimistically valued. 
and obviously in other factors like cryptocurrencies, which have fallen sharply. Now, we're not investing in those areas, but it also has an effect on broader indices. So the US equity market is down about 20% from the high, which was set at the end of last year. The NASDAQ, which is the US index that represents much more technology names, both large cap technology companies like Microsoft, Apple, which are incredibly profitable, and to technology companies, which are still more hope than reality. That index is down over 30%. Probably an unfair question, but it sounds like we're in for something which is going to last quite some time. Is that your view? I'm going to be a true economist and sit on the fence, but yes, probably. In reality, all the crises we've had, and certainly at the time they felt existential, certainly the global financial crisis was a couple of missteps away from a global depression. But in the end, central banks came to the rescue by cutting interest rates and pumping money in the system. And they've been doing that since early noughties. Federal Reserve was cutting interest rates into the economic slowdown in the early 2000s in the bear market. And then after the GFC, after the euro crisis, it is very difficult to see how central banks will do that, given the inflationary backdrop. And they have almost to a man come out and said, fighting inflation is our core priority. What are some of the tools that central banks would be using to fight inflation? I mean, is it literally increasing rates? Yes. I mean, dare I say, central bankers probably have overestimated abilities and their worth, but they have actually quite limited tools. And it's essentially raising the cost of money and controlling the volume of money. The other tool is essentially government spending and government borrowing. And one could argue part of the problem in the last decade was that governments were not willing to spend because austerity and balanced budgets were the mantra. There's a great degree of groupthink that goes on, not just with politicians, but with central bankers. It is outside of the control of central bankers and politicians to deal with the supply side issues, which would basically mean supply chain problems coming from China and energy. Unless we're going to roll back sanctions on Russia and reverse the trend to net zero and encourage a much greater degree of non-OPEC oil production. That's unlikely. So their tools are really quite limited. And that probably means raising the cost of money until there is a degree of economic slowdown. I mean, I can just remember because I just bought my house as the interest rates were coming down, but interest rates are sort of 13, 14%. And yep. you sort of wonder about, would that bring this country to its knees if that happened? Because people are so used to paying such low rates for their mortgages, you know. But equally, I guess populations are very good at embracing whatever kind of gets thrown at them, aren't they, in the long run? Yes, there's a great degree of adaptability, but nobody is expecting interest rates to go back to where they were in the 80s or even the early 90s. And part of that is there is a greater degree of belief and credibility amongst investors that central banks can and will control inflation. And certainly, if that is wrong, and if interest rates do have to go back to those levels, then it's going to be and I think there's no other word of saying this, horrible, very, very horrible, because we've had well over a decade of low rates and so many structures, whether it's people's mortgages, corporate borrowings are built on 
that level of interest rates. So what we're talking about is still 3 4% rates rather than 9% rates, 9 or 10. It's really fascinating having this conversation because you realize how everything is kind of interconnected and that whole thing about the toothpaste out of the tube, it sort of feels like someone's shaking a massive bottle of champagne, the cork comes flying off, just because of the rapidity of how things have happened, to be honest with you. So what's fascinating about this conversation is then how you're kind of looking at changing investment decisions based on what you're looking at now and into the future as well. So I think it's kind of interesting to correlate those two things. I mean, it was a reasonable expectation that inflation and interest rates would go up this year. What has been the surprise and the shock is the war in Ukraine. Yeah, That's just another thing. For the last two decades, we've been in a world where geopolitics really didn't make that much difference. Even things like the Gulf War, which did disrupt energy prices for a short while, were much more transitory than this. And it's also very important. You know, Russia is about energy, not oil. So it's gas and oil. It's also about foodstuffs. So Ukraine and Russia are a significant portion of the world's wheat and barley exports. Nickel. I found out that Ukraine is one of the largest manufacturers of an inert gas that's critical in the manufacture of semiconductors. So it's all this interconnectivity. And so the impact of this has been much larger. But at the same time, we've got politics getting a lot more fractured everywhere. And it's part of the backdrop that makes resolving problems harder. Fascinating. Well, thank you so much. I mean, that's a real tour de force of what's going on. I mean, it's not all the best news, but I guess what's good news is that you're on top of it and looking forward and making adjustments as time goes on. We made a big shift in portfolios in November of last year, where we were overweight equity and we cut equity back to neutral, just as importantly, or maybe even more importantly, we really shifted the nature of the fund managers we use. We ended up with a very strong value tilt. Fund managers talk about investment styles, and a growth manager is one that looks at you know, the prospects of a company, very optimistic, prepared to buy and pay high prices for the prospect of future growth. Whereas value managers are much more concerned about the valuation. And if you blend that with a quality approach, it's a valuation of companies that are making profits here and now, even if that profit stream may not be as exciting as Uber or Tesla or so on. And that really did help protect the equity proportion on the downside. In the fixed income mix, we've had very short duration. And duration is just a technical term for saying we hold lots of short-dated bonds which are less susceptible to inflation. Inflation destroys the future value of your earnings or dividends. So if you hold a long-dated bond, that future value is just going to be undercut by inflationary pressures or rising interest rates. So again, that's helped protect the value of the bond mix. And in fact, actually, we're doing something quite significant this time around. We're actually beginning to build a position in longer dated bonds because they have fallen far enough that they're starting to look like fair value, starting to look like. So we're not building a full position, but we're nibbling at it because you just can't get the bottom. But where we are now with equities is we think that 
as the situation has deteriorated, value will still protect on the downside, but not as much as we thought. And that's why we're now taking more money out of equities. Fantastic. Well, listen, thank you so much for joining us. It'd be interesting to replay this conversation in six months' time and we can see where we've got to then. Yeah. It's never easy in markets. If it was easy, then we'd all be doing it. But this time, it's really quite interesting. Fabulous. Well, thank you again. Pleasure. Thanks for tuning in to Baseline, a monthly podcast series dedicated to topics that matter in wealth management. Be sure to check out our podcast archive on SoundCloud. And until next time, have a marvellous week. You have been listening to Baseline from Cavendish Ware, an NMD Plus production.